This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie and welcome to part three of my mini-series on the early days of the internet called From Dial-Up to Satellites. So in part one, if you haven't listened to them already, in part one, we looked at the origins of the World Wide Web and its roots back in the 1980s and then looked at how Netscape brought the internet really to the world and made it accessible and usable. And then in part two, we looked at America Online or AOL and how that brought the internet into everybody's home and showed people what the internet was capable of and how it could be fun and and very interactive and community driven. So in this third part, we're looking at what they call internet 2.0 and how everything really exploded. And that's all because of search. And we're looking at how one company in particular changed the way that the human species would access information. So before we start, if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I should be there. Okay, let's get into it. And a lot of this has to do with what's in a name. Businesses often spend an unnecessary amount of time trying to come up with the perfect name. There is some importance in it, but if a company is solid enough, any name will actually do. The name Google didn't mean much at first, and it still may seem weird, but it's so established with the company that it doesn't really matter. We know Google as a giant company, but where did the name come from? What's the origins? How did this all develop? This is obviously a massive topic that can be the focus of a whole podcast, you know, a hundred episode podcast. So it's a, you know, minor overview of everything. And when we look back, the largest search engine in the world almost went by a few different names. And it was a dorm roommate that introduced a term that would eventually become Google. And a lot of this amazing information I found in the book called In the Plex by Stephen Levy. And awesome book. It looks into the insights and the origins of the now trillion dollar company that again changed the way we would find and search and access information. So the story of the internet itself, like if you listen to part one, you know the foundations of the web started in the very late 80s, but it grew extremely quickly. You know, within a couple years, that's when we already had Netscape and then we had AOL not long after that. We're, we're, we're now into the mid to late 90s and the internet as a thing is obviously more established. And this starts with Larry Page and Sergey Brin. 
and they had been working on a more advanced form of web search. As the internet was coming into its own, people needed a better way to search it and find relevant results. In those first few years, there was only, I don't want to say a handful, but there wasn't that many websites. So finding things were relatively easy. It was more about just knowing the website you wanted to go to as opposed to searching 100,000 different options. But then as each year went by, the exponential growth of websites and the web in general was through the roof. Now there's too much to search through. So how do you narrow it all down? And now search engines are starting to come up. And, you know, looking into the early days of Yahoo and a ton of other search engines that just came and went so fast because no one could perfect the model of it. So Paige and Bryn were two Stanford students, and they wanted to create something better than the very clunky, very unuser-friendly alternatives. So the first thing they came up with was actually called Backrub, and it was searching the web to find the user helpful results, which is the whole point of search. If you want to find the most relevant information, you want, you know, current, updated you know, cited, depending on how deep the information you need is, you want the things to be the most relevant. You don't always want necessarily what's the most popular because that might not be what you're looking for specifically. Back in those days, search was a disaster. Anything, even specific keywords wouldn't find exactly what you were looking for. And there was just the idea that search itself was never going to be finished. It wasn't, they would never sort of find this scientific perfect approach that would make search um, relevant and again, very user-friendly. So everyone had kind of given up on web search, let alone that there was going to be any promise of money to this thing. One of the other early search engines was Excite, if you remember that one. And the thing with Excite is they wanted to keep people on Excite. If the search instantly gave people the information they wanted, they would leave the search engine and head over to the other site. And you probably remember that with the early days of Yahoo. Everything was on that one homepage, like sports, results, weather, news, updates, stock market, horoscope, all that stuff. They wanted You could still search, but they wanted to keep you on Yahoo.com because that's where the advertising was and banner ads and stuff like that. So... That's another big reason that the main internet companies weren't that crazy about search. Why would you want to send somebody to another site? Why would you want them to leave yours? They called this stickiness. That was the idea of keeping someone specifically on your web page. So again, this is a terrible business idea, and especially when there's advertising involved, because you're physically pushing these people away from what you want them to see. You want them there as long as possible. So. The problem is this is great for the early web companies who, you know, were making hundreds of millions of dollars instantly because of all these advertising rates and because there was no real competition. There was nowhere else to go. So how do you build a better mousetrap, or in this case, search engine? Page and Bryn weren't sure how to monetize this early search engine that they called Backrub, but they were providing their users with a much better and more relevant experience. These two college students were actually kind of outdoing these giant web companies with their more algorithmic approach 
and very scientific um, aspect to everything they were doing. There was just, to them, there was no problem that couldn't be solved. And that's their approach with web search. Page and Brin were about to cash in on Backrub as Excite was looking to buy it. This deal would be sunk when Excite realized Backrub was a superior search. This all went down in a head-to-head what they call Bake Off. And that's when the two companies are going up against each other. It was Excite versus Backrub. And Backrub came out on top with quicker and much more relevant results. So they, when, when I talk about this Bake Off, they get together in the same room they set up laptops they they keep everything you know same internet connection the whole deal and then they run the two search engines through different search results and they're conducting the same search and backrubs coming out not only quicker but way more relevant because backrub was too good excite didn't want to buy a product that took people too quickly away from the search engine isn't that incredible they could have owned google and dominated the internet page and brin then took their product to multiple companies over the course of 18 months and it was the same story each time thanks but no thanks it's it's incredible it's like the the record companies that turned down the beatles but in this case even bigger Page and Brin didn't realize at the time, but all of this rejection would lead them to make billions. If you look at the top five richest people in the world, I'm not sure if it may, at least the top eight, both of them are in that list. And they're only a few off like Jeff Bezos and um, Mark Zuckerberg and whatever. The last I looked, I think they were both in the top five richest people in the world. Page and Brin believed search engines were the future of the internet, and they decided to go out on their own. But then the name Backrub wasn't the most professional sounding thing. It was September 1997, and the name Backrub was out. Page and Brin needed a new name for their search engine that sounded more businesslike. The front runner and what they were going to go for was the What Box. Looking back, it's not the worst name in the world, as it's more descriptive of what the search engine is. And that's really what the Google search bar is it's a true What Box. But there was a problem. The what box sounded too close, earmuff it here if there's any younger people listening. What box sounded too close to wet box, and that wasn't the most family-friendly thing and was getting a lot of negative search results. That's all I'll say with that. So they had to get rid of that name. It was Paige's dorm roommate that suggested they call their search engine Google, G-O-O-G-O-L. Now, Google if you knew about this before, is a mathematical term for a number that is followed by a hundred zeros. It's often referred to as a Googleplex. It's basically a word to describe an incredibly large number. This was perfect as an incredibly large number was the very essence of their search engine. The web, like I mentioned, has now exploded and there were now millions of websites and billions of pages that could be searched. When you include all the images, documents, page combinations, you're dealing with an incredibly large number, like a Google. And that's just the accessible web. Think about most of the stuff you do when you go online. That's not accessible to everyone, whether it's your own email account or your banking or or whatever. Like that's not available. The the part of the web that you see is actually very small that like the general public can see. It's quite tiny compared to the overall web. And it's still billions of pages. 
So they're set on the name Google. But when Page went to register it as their domain, he misspelled the word to G-O-O-G-L-E. This worked out for the best, though, because it turns out that Google, as the number G-O-O-G-O-L, wasn't available for an internet address. Google was, however, with the L-E. And it was a word that didn't exist, so it was perfect. The name Google, G-O-O-G-L-E, that's what I'm referring to now when I say it, it also looked better. It was easier to type, and it was still memorable. There was one last piece of the puzzle, and then that was making Google into a logo. Bryn was designing the homepage and spelled out the new name with different colors. The idea was that the logo would look like they made it out of children's blocks. Do a Google image search and you can look up that original Google logo. And the idea they wanted to convey here was that they weren't very mechanical or serious. It wouldn't be a bland industrial-like company like IBM or Microsoft or whatever. It was more on the whimsical side. The first logo for Google actually included an exclamation mark at the end of it, similar to Yahoo. Like Yahoo, Google was going to be marketed as playful and young. And that was the interesting thing that you're still seeing today. When you look at the Google search page, you know, it's got the noticeable colors and, and they've really changed the font and look of the Google logo over the years, though it looks very simple. It, it's actually very like subtle changes that have happened, which they say are very important for the way you perceive the brand and all that sort of stuff. But what's interesting is when they were first designing the web page, they didn't have a lot of money and they didn't have a lot of bandwidth to create the page. That's why there's so much white space. So when you see it, it's just like the Google logo, the the search bar, and all this white space. And that was for a few reasons. The first was because they just didn't have enough money to design it. They couldn't afford a designer. And second, putting too much on the page would slow everything down quite a bit. So that what you're seeing today is the exact same thing that happened way, way back then. This is what's interesting, and it's just it comes back to that the name of a company is not all that relevant. Like again, the term Facebook meant nothing outside of Ivy League schools at first. Now it's a household name. And you know, many new companies and the startups at the time were agonizing over finding the perfect name to represent their business. And that's what led to the sort of um, destruction of a lot of the other competition search engines because they were just trying to like make it too perfect where Google kept things simple. Google's proof that you could use any random name and still find success. Whatbox could have worked, as could, you know, any other random names. The name Google, though, meant something to its creators, as they always connected it to the original Google number, G-O-O-G-O-L. But no one else was really going to know that. They spent all their time perfecting their product, and the name was the last piece of the puzzle. It was, you know, basically most companies took the opposite approach. You know, if a company is going to be successful, the name will too. And one of the big Google headquarters now is actually called the Googleplex, which is, you know, everything coming perfectly full circle. So we obviously don't have to get into too much about how successful this company is because we all know it. There's no spoiler alert here. But... When we're looking at the revenue, what you're seeing with Google is one of the most perfect sort of trajections of consistent growth and income over the years in the history of any company and the human civilization. It is this perfect sort of like, when they talk about like graphs and like growth and they always talk like a hockey stick, 
um, curve is ideal where it's, you know, the blade of the stick starting and then it goes straight up. With Google, it was even better because it was this like perfect curving wave. And it took like, again, it took a little while for this to catch on because, you know, as people will, were still not all in on search. And then you had the dot-com bubble burst, but Google was able to make it through all that. So when they, in those first early years, you know, we're looking at 2002, 2003, 2004, they're slowly growing. You know, they're at like 500 million those first few years. And then soon they cross that billion dollar mark. By 2005, they're at 6 billion. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The next year, it's ten billion. The next year, it's sixteen billion. It's going consistently. By two thousand twelve, it's fifty billion. Going into two thousand sixteen, it's ninety billion. Twenty eighteen, it's one hundred thirty-six billion. Last year, it was getting upwards of $200 billion. Like, there's no sign that this growth is ever going to stop. That's how powerful this thing is and how important Google is to all our lives. And the fact that it's turned into a verb that you are just going to Google something and almost the fact, I mean, I don't know, depending on how you see this, if people say maybe it promotes um, ignorance because you you can rely on Google, but I think whenever you have access to anything instantly, I mean, that's not a bad thing to take advantage of. Like you're probably listening to this on a phone, I imagine, or whatever. Or if you're not, the phone you keep in your pocket, you can look up anything about anything or anyone that has ever existed or happened in the history of the world. And that is astonishing. And that's what I mean, how it has just changed the way the human race accesses information. It's now instant. There is no reason not to know anything anymore. And you just instantly pick up your phone for good or for bad. I don't see it as bad because it's you're constantly getting a chance to learn and instantly access information, which is what we do as human beings. So it obviously sounds all perfect for Google, but I'm going to tell another story here, which is about their one giant failure and how they could be potentially twice as big as they are now. And it all has to do with social media, social networking, and them dropping the ball on potentially being the first Facebook. I don't think this is a very common story, but it is the fact that Google beat Facebook to the punch, but they just wouldn't commit to social networking. And I touched a little bit, I mean, this is a whole other giant topic. I touched a little bit on the early show's are the previous shows about the early social networks. And the very first one technically is was called Six Degrees. And it was that idea that, you know, the six degrees of separation and uh, the person who invented it thought, you know, since everyone's online, it's going to be even easier to connect now. That led into Friendster, which led into MySpace, which led into a bunch of different versions eventually going to Facebook. But in this case with Google. It turns out that being first to something isn't 
always that important. Companies like Apple, for example, have built a lot of their success, success not on being first, but by coming in and finding a better way to do it. When it comes to social networking, Facebook was also far from the first. Like I mentioned, those other uh, sites that predated Mark Zuckerberg's creation, including one that most people never heard of called Orkut, O-R-K-U-T. And this is a look at how Google was actually at the forefront of this whole thing and then dropped the ball. If you remembered, I'd totally forgotten about this until I was looking back at it. Remember Google Plus? Uh, that was their big social networking thing and the only one we technically connect with Google that died a slow death. Uh, but, you know, they've been part of this since the early days. And again, a lot amazing story in that book in the Plex about how they were there at the birth of social networking. So we're going back to 2002, like, you know, right when they're getting going and everything like that. So in 2002, you got the Winter Olympics taking place in Salt Lake City. Spider-Man and Ice Age uh, came out in theaters. And this is also a very interesting year when it came to the internet and one of the most pivotal years. So the dot-com bubble had reached the inevitable bottom as the Dow had sunk below uh, 7,200 points, but the internet companies were still trying to push forward and the few of them would make it out. So there was a young Google engineer named Orcut. I'm butchering the last name. I don't even know if I want to try and say it. His first name's Orcut. We'll go with that. He saw what was possible with the internet. He believed that all internet users could be connected so they could share ideas and build strong connections with one another. Orkut had come to the U.S. from Turkey. He attended Stanford before joining Google. And again, this is right when Google's, you know, getting going and growing rapidly. The thing that's interesting at Google is the staff was all allowed to spend 20% of their time on any creative projects. And you've probably heard of this with Pixar, where the employees are allowed to, are allowed to just mess around with ideas and whatever, because it could potentially lead to something. Apparently, that's what led to the WALL-E movie, just someone fooling around with this idea and turned into a whole major project. So the project Orca was working on was called a cyberspace preserve where people could connect and intermingle in peace. It was based on the popular site Friendster. Users would build a profile and then be able to connect with others when approved. The idea was to create an online utopia where users could share peace and build meaningful connections. He took it to some higher-ups at Google who loved the idea of Google having their own social network. So now it becomes Orcut.com. To reflect the peaceful intentions of his network, Orcut wanted to call the site Eden, but Eden.com was already taken. Google thought that it should be named after him, and Orcut.com was born. You may wonder why the name had no mention of Google at all in it, when you think of all the other Google products, like Google Docs, Google Sheets, all that sort of thing. The company wanted to see if the social network could stand on its own two feet. So Orcut.com came out of the gates pretty hot. You may or may not remember this, but it was... Uh, it did have a rapid sort of succession when it started. To use it, you had to be invited, and this made it feel more exclusive. Remember, like, the early, again, I don't know how old you are, but if you remember the early days of Facebook, you had to be invited or just, like, a Gmail account. I don't know if you remember the first time you went on Facebook. It's it's one of those sort of pivotal moments people remember specifically. And I remember hearing about it in 2006 from a friend from England who was, it, it still, this is when Facebook wasn't open 
um, up outside of universities. Like that was the only way you could get on at first. And he was telling me about this site. And then later in 2006, they started opening it up to basically high schools and then everyone and then getting on it that way. And that was the thing with orcut.com is you had, this is years before Facebook too, it may, it felt more exclusive because you had to be invited. The main users at first were the thousands of employees at Google who all invited their friends and family to join the social network. So that's why it exploded at first. In the first month, hundreds of thousands of people would join. There were so many users that Google made the engineers check the stats to make sure it wasn't an error. Orkut was so big that Google had to take it down for a couple days because their system couldn't handle it. And this is Google, the biggest, you know, it's at the time already the biggest search engine there is. So you can imagine the amount of traffic they're getting and they still couldn't handle Orkut.com. That's how big it was. The first main users were, of course, in the U.S., but then the next biggest country of users was Japan with 8%. Google didn't want to tinker too much with the site and decided just to sit back and observe, which is the complete opposite of how everything else they've ever done. They, they could adjust on the fly. That was the beauty of building internet web products is you could get instant feedback and adjust things with quick updates. With Orcut, they wanted to see how this was going to play out. Of course, our hindsight being 2020, we know how big social networking would become. To them, there was nothing to compare it against. You know, MySpace isn't even totally a thing and Friendster, like there's no money to make in this thing. The idea of Facebook is years off that something like this could be a billion dollar industry. So they had no reason to sort of go all in on it, but they really didn't. They sat back and let this thing do its own thing. The site is growing like wildfire, but Google is still resistant to adapt and tweak it. And this is causing issues to the whole site. This is stunning now that I've read all this history of Google and how um, Brin and Page operated and how hands-on they were. Very Steve Jobs-like. Steve Jobs is one of the first people they wanted to come in as their CEO because everything had to be perfected. It's just so crazy with the sort of perfectionist they were, that they didn't do it with this. But I guess, you know, again, it was sort of a novelty thing. I mean, Facebook was still a novelty in the early days. They're sitting back, the site's getting all buggy, the system still having trouble from the overload of users is sputtering. It can't handle the traffic and impatient users jump ship like they usually do. Google was big into quick launches uh, launching things as fast as possible and then again figuring them out as they go and orca was no exception the problem was google had no idea what it had on its hands again no one knew what a social network could really become google had the opportunity to dominate social networking they just didn't realize it their philosophy was to let the systems prove themselves they had let Orcut build the project without knowing if it was any good. It turns out it was very good, as was the concept of a social network. You're going to have to, again, do a Google image search. You can see the early pages of Orcut.com. It's exactly what the early Facebook design looked like. And you have to think Mark Zuckerberg was sort of aware of this because he was aware of everything going on with all these big companies and new startups and new web pages and everything like that. Again, Google just waited to see if it was going to crash from overuse. When it inevitably did, they finally brought in other programmers to tighten everything up, but it was too late. Here's the thing. Despite many in the U.S. abandoning the site, Orcut became a massive hit in countries like Brazil and India. Orcut became 
part of daily life for many Brazilians. There was no rhyme or reason why it caught on in these other countries. One theory is that these places used, uh, they had poor internet connections and they were more willing to wait out the glitches. They were just sort of used to pages stalling to load and everything like that. You know, people in North America left at the first sign of the site instability. Another idea was that the different time zones helped the site speed. Since these countries were in the opposite time zone to the U.S., there was less load on the servers. Orkut was so big in India that it was the primary Google product ahead of Gmail and even Google Search. But a new social networking (laughs) site had just sprung up, created by a Harvard student that would go on to change the world. So here's the demise of Orkut.com. Of course, Facebook soon became the social network of choice, not just in North America, but India, Brazil, and any other country where Orkut was remotely successful. So why didn't Google make Orkut more of a priority? The problem was that only around 2% of the users were American. Half of the users were from Brazil and about 40% were from India. Despite its astonishing early su- success, Orkut just wasn't a priority. Google, again, is, was still relatively small and a social networking site required a specific amount of attention and engineers that they needed for other projects. It turns out Google hadn't put the right balance between Orca and other projects. Again, in fairness, there was no way to tell what social networks could become. I've said that a few times, but now I don't believe what I'm saying because they had all the early warning signs that this could be successful. Like the servers crashing, having to update it, seeing the absurd amount of traffic. Orca was an immediate success. They knew it and they just didn't do anything about it. Interestingly, though, Orkut continued to be used in countries like Brazil, but on September 20th, 2014, it would finally be closed. You can actually still go to Orkut.com today where there is a message from the real-life Orkut. The site would be sold off and moved, and there, there's a, a weird sort of trajectory where apparently part of it was bought by MySpace or there's connections with AOL, whatever. It, it, you know, basically, it fell apart. Despite the early success of Orkut, Google just didn't seem interested in social networks. Most startups would kill to have a launch like Orkut did, but there was just too much going on at Google at the time. It was just the worst time when everything Google-wise and search was growing so fast. If it had been a couple years later or you know, maybe even a year later, it might have been a whole different story. And we'd all be on Orkut.com instead of Facebook. Again, this is during the early days of the company when they were throwing quite a lot at the wall to see what would stick. They were acquiring companies left and right and creating many new products. They even bought a small company. Here's an example. A company called Dodgeball that lets mobile phone users turn their city into a huge game of hide-and-seek. Dodgeball had an interesting feature called Shout. This allowed users to send short location-based messages to friends. But like Orca, Google didn't pay much attention to the company and it failed to grow. The founder of Dodgeball, Dennis Crowley, was one of the first to see an early version of Twitter. Crowley tried to give Google heads up on the importance of social apps like this, but they weren't listening. Google officially cut ties with Dodgeball, but a few years later, location-based apps became hot. A new one created by Crowley used the same location technology from Dodgeball. It was called Foursquare. Ultimately, Orca didn't work because Google was more focused on data and algorithms than personal recommendations and interactions, and these two are the things at the heart of social networking. Despite the time you know, we spend online, the human connection behind that time online is still critical. 
So we'll finish it there. And next week we finish with part four, which is all about how we consume video online. And we're looking specifically at Netflix. So I will see you there. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and I'll talk to you soon.